Hey, so welcome to Regen. My name is Kyle. I just want to share with you a little bit about who we are and uh, what we're up to these days before we dive into our new series on Christmas. Um, here's what I'd like you to do. If you happen to be a first-time guest, I'd like you to stand up so we can all judge you. I'm totally kidding. Uh, please remain anonymous. Uh, but we have a gift for you. At the back of the room, there are some mugs. Colleen is sitting next to them. If you happen to be a guest, that's just our way of saying thanks for being here. Please take one of those. Uh, if you don't mind filling out a connection card so that we can stay in touch with you and get some feedback from you over the next few uh, days, that would be fabulous. So please just do that on your way out. Hang on a second. We want to keep this on in case I want to pop lock and drop it. And uh, there you go. And Matt, there's that mental picture for you tonight. Good job. Hey, here's what I want you to do. No matter if this is your first time or your 1,001st time, take out your phone. Uh, and do me a favor, open up your Facebook app. We've recently partnered with uh, an organization called Reach, which helps us every week to do real good, to be generous, to do something fun uh, for someone in need simply by checking in on Facebook. And so if you have the Facebook app, if you're a Facebook user, if not, get one. Uh, because that way, by the end of the night, you could have said that you have fed a Burmese orphan by the end of our night. Last week, we fed 16 Burmese orphans who are currently living uh, over the border in Thailand because of civil unrest in their country. And these organizations that care for these people, which we've vetted and we know are legit, or at least Reach has, they have trouble keeping funds together. And so by simply clicking that check-in button and maybe taking a selfie, make sure that you say you're at Regen, and then share a status. Uh, when you press post, you will have fed one Burmese orphan, which is perhaps the most generous thing you've done all day. And so you should pat yourself on the back because that's pretty cool. Next month, the um, charity changes, but this is our last one. So just all you have to do is do that. I'll take a picture here in a second of all of y'all. That's our way of, our mission at Regen is to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so one of the ways that we feel like our lives are interrupted and Jesus interrupts our lives is by his generosity. And so tonight we're, uh, and last week, we're being, we have this unique opportunity to just interrupt people's lives with generosity that we don't even know. And so hopefully we can break about 40 Burmese orphans fed by the end of the night. Um, every month we choose one thing to do that will help our community see the love and grace of Jesus. And so this month, uh, well, technically next month, December, we're going to be on campus at Kent State Trumbull, and we're going to give out about 150, 175 cups of Starbucks coffee uh, over a period of an hour and a half. So either we run out of coffee or run out of time. I don't know which happens first. So that's Tuesday, December 8th. We'll be doing that, pumping our uh, Christmas candlelight service. At Regen, we don't have a Christmas Eve service. We're partnered with another church, and so they're obviously using their building at this time of day. And so... Uh, especially on Christmas Eve. And so our Christmas Eve, 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 Eve service is on Sunday, December 20th. Christmas Eve, 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 Eve. There's five Eves. Uh, the nice thing is that um, Christmas falls on a Sunday next year. And so we'll be able to have a Christmas Eve, 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 Eve service uh, a full week beforehand. It'll be super, super fun. No, I'm just kidding. But so keep in mind that we've given you some cards. We'll be giving you all sorts of resources. Invite your neighbors and your friends and your mom and your grandma and your dog, but not your dog, uh, to come and just check this out. We're super excited. It was a really fun service last year, and we'll do all the good stuff. We're in a new series tonight called Christmas Is. And over the next four weeks, we're going to kind of be unpacking Advent, 
some of the basic texts that come to us uh, from the book of Matthew about who Jesus is and what his birth means. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. If you want to have a Bible, there's one under the chairs. Don't go for the red one. Go for the blue one. Uh, And my wife will probably very graciously mouth me what page we're on here in a second. Uh, Sorry, honey, I forgot to look. We're on Matthew chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament. Um, 577, but you want to flip one page back. That's where we'll be tonight, Matthew chapter 1. As we open this up, let's pray together. Hey God, thanks for your presence here and for giving us opportunities to be generous to others and respond to your generosity toward us in the gospel. Help us today, Father, to hear from you. Right now, you're upholding the universe by the word of your power, and so you have your eyes on supernovas and black holes and the expansion or shrinking rate or whatever it is we learned in science of the galaxy, and so we just ask that you turn your attention toward us for just a moment tonight, that you send your spirit here to encourage us, to challenge us as we open up your word. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, God is in the Manger, writes that we're not good at waiting. That in an impatient and overstimulated age, we've lost the ability to just wait. He writes this, celebrating Advent means being able to wait. Waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. It wants to break open the ripe fruit when it has hardly finished planning to shoot, but all too often the greedy eyes are only deceived. The fruit that seems so precious is still green on the inside, and disrespectful hands ungratefully toss aside what has so disappointed them. Whoever does not know the austere blessedness of waiting, that is, of hopefully doing without, will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment. Waiting, of hopefully doing without, is the central message of the season of Advent, which is those four consecutive Sundays leading into Christmas Eve. The church has celebrated Advent for centuries, engaging in a different kind of countdown than the one offered us by ABC Family or the Hallmark Channel. Um, Although there's some pretty awesome movies on ABC Family and You should probably just buy them on DVD so you can skip the commercials. In an era where Christmas trees go on sale on July 5th, when our Christmas sales are offered to us at the end of October, Advent interrupts us and calls us to slow down the process of moving to Christmas. Advent fills the days that lead up to December 24th with anticipation and divine expectation that our ancestors experienced as they waited for the Messiah. And yet it also fills our days with a sense of the ways that we're waiting for God to do something in our lives. Bonhoeffer defines waiting as hopefully doing without. And I would add that to wait in the Christian sense, to wait on God is to endure unmet desires and unfulfilled or even unwanted longings. It's to live your life hoping for a career that was more fulfilling and only to find that it never really was. It's to live a life hoping for a better relationship 
with your family only to find that it never actually clicked. It's to live a life with unwanted longings, to have a habit or maybe even addiction that we can't quite shake that still haunts us at night, to be challenged by our own loneliness, either because the relationships we have aren't really all that fulfilling or we've never even actually found the one. Advent reminds us of this, that we're still waiting for God to do something. That in all of our lives, perhaps for all of them, or maybe it's just felt in certain seasons more poignantly than others, that there are times that we are aware that we need God to do something, that there are corners and gaps at the edges that we need him to fill. Simply put, the central question of Advent is this, what are you waiting for? The central question of Advent is what are you waiting for? At Regen, we do something maybe that you've never done in church before we talk to each other. Uh, And not in like the shake hands with one another, which I just always think is strange, uh, even though this is my profession, I guess. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get in groups of three or four and take about four or five minutes, say until the, the clock hand hits the six at the bottom, and I want you to answer this question, what are you waiting for? Groups of three or four, answer this question. What are you waiting for? Is the task clear? All right, on your mark, get set, talk to each other. Thanks for having that conversation. It may continue, hi, Care. Uh, It may continue over uh, the next minutes and we'll have some time. By the way, I need to say out loud, they're like the most amazing pumpkin truffles outside. Um, it, is, it is a significant problem, and so uh, just be ready that you're kind of releasing a kraken or something, I don't know. What are you waiting for? I think the truth of the matter is that we're all waiting on God to do something, that our lives, sometimes at their worst, start to feel like a hamster wheel of waiting. That we wait for something, and we wait for something, and we wait for something, and then we get it, and then our problem is there's always something else to wait for. There's always something else to long after. And so tonight we're gonna look at a text that's all about waiting, a text that's about waiting over the long haul. It's a text that talks about how we get to the end of our waiting in Matthew chapter one. We're gonna look at Matthew one, verses one through 17. If you know anything about the Bible, you're looking at this and wondering what the heck. There's like three other pastors in the room tonight, so they're all probably four other pastors in the room tonight. What are they doing with this? Matthew 1, Advent's rooted to Scripture in this way. We want to rush to the birth of Jesus, and yet the Scripture tells us a story that takes longer. In fact, there's 39 books worth of waiting in the Old Testament before we ever open up to Jesus. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I'm going to read all of this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus of the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, 
Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. If you're ever asked to read old, like these names out loud in a public setting, always just go loud, proud, and fast. <laughs> and no one ever wonders if you did it right. Verse 16, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers born at the exile of Babylon. I went to Bible college, lots of Sarahs, lots of Michaels, lots of Nathans, not a lot of Hezekiahs. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abud. Abud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok is the father of Akim. Akim is the father of Eliud. Eliud is the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. The text before us is is called a genealogy, which to Matthew was an incredibly important kind of biblical literature. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, and if you're not, if you ever start to read it, you'll come into contact with lots of lists just like this. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. Some of us have, you know, tried to be brave and say, I'm going to read the whole Bible from cover to cover. And so you start in Genesis, which is mostly pretty good. You get into Exodus, there's some pretty cool stuff, like a Red Sea gets parted, there's like plagues, it, it moves. And then you get into the book of Numbers. Numbers is a census. And so it's basically a whole book of these lists, which means throughout the book of Numbers and throughout history is a long line of corpses of those who have tried to read the Bible in a year and have failed miserably because you get to these lists and what in the heck is it for? And yet, if we're going to take Paul seriously, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, Paul says this, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. Somehow, this list of names is intended to teach us what is true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Hopefully the lesson of this text goes a little deeper than have a lot of babies or something. But if we're gonna take this seriously, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we have to ask the question, what's the deal with the genealogy? Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy for a couple of reasons. And the first is because no major character in scripture is introduced without one. There's no major character in the Bible that gets introed without, or a a family in the Bible that doesn't get introed without one of these genealogies. It's kind of like a drum roll. 
It's the best kind of introduction. When you, you know, you watch a, it probably happened at the Ohio State game. I didn't watch it. We were decorating our house for Christmas. But, you know, like the, the band is playing and there's all this stuff and then fireworks go off and the team runs out and people are screaming. The biblical equivalent to that is a genealogy. And I, you can tell which one is, frankly, just a little more sexy. But at a deeper level, what Matthew is trying to point to is something that begins in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, there's this thing called, here's your Bible trivia for tonight, the totally dope formula, which is always means that the Bible introduced lists of people with these are the generations of, and then here's so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. These totally dope formulas are ways that the, book, the author of Genesis show that God is creating something. And so here's the deal. When Matthew starts his gospel this way, he wants his Jewish readers, this gospel is written to Jews, to see God is starting something new here. That God is creating something brand new. You've never seen anything like this before. He's also working overtime to connect Jesus with King David. King David is the best king Israel ever had, which on one hand wasn't too hard of a thing because um, most of their kings really sucked. And so it wasn't really hard to kind of clear the bar of low expectations, but David did it in a way that was unforgettable. David is described as a man after God's own heart of totally undivided loyalty. And because of his commitment to the Lord, the Lord promises that one of his descendants will reign on that throne forever. And that person is the Messiah. Jews were waiting for a king who had spiritual and legal authority to sit on David's throne. And that's what Matthew is arguing for here. He's trying to say, this person that you've been waiting for, for 14 generations, plus 14 generations, plus 14 generations, plus quite a few before that. This person that you've been waiting for is finally here. Because you've got to understand, when Matthew ends this genealogy with these 14 generations from A to B, and 14 generations from B to C, and 14 generations from C to D, he's pointing to the importance that the one that you've waited for is finally here. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were given a promise of a Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, the text says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. The Lord is speaking to the snake who tempted Adam and Eve. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. From the very first time that Adam and Eve are promised, not even in the fullest way. It's not like, here's the gospel on a scroll so that you can understand it. It's a hint, it's a whisper. But the first time they're ever given a hint and a whisper, at the very start of their waiting, it takes ages for the Lord to end it. I mean, not just a couple of minutes, not just a couple of weeks, not even just a couple of years or a couple of decades or even a couple of generations centuries pass and yet all along the way while Israel labors under the weight of unmet desires and unwanted longings Israel was taken to slavery not once but twice they've been forced into war through poverty and famine through endless bad kings and before that endless bad judges and before that priests who didn't give a while Israel waited, the Lord was working. Throughout this text, Paul, excuse me, Matthew drops hints and whispers of what the Lord was doing. He talks about 
Boaz, a man who found his wife in her poverty, and because he was related to her, like kind of similar how to me and the Browning twins are related, like 50th cousin, 17 times removed, which actually now that I made that illustration, this is going to get weird, he married one of them. He married her and plucked her from poverty and in her need and loved her just because he loved her. There was David, who he talked about, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, who led Israel into unprecedented prosperity, both politically and spiritually. There was Hezekiah, who after king after king after king after king could care less about Yahweh, about worshiping the one true God, about caring for the nation, fought and won a battle so that they would worship the one true God. There was Zerubbabel who led Israel out of captivity and into freedom. I think what's so important about this genealogy is that it teaches us that even in the midst of our waiting, even in the midst of the unmet desire that you wrestle with now, even in the midst of the unwanted longing that you have right now, God is doing something to bring your waiting to an end. And more often than not, He lets us know he's working, not with fireworks or clouds in the sky or anything big, but with a hint and a whisper. What's also also so important about this genealogy is that a few interesting names make their way into the list. Four women make their name into a list at a time when women weren't really ever remembered for anything Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, who are all, or at least three of the four, connected to King David in his maybe most recent line in terms of parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents. Three of them are Gentiles, which means they're not part of the nation, which they expected the Messiah to come from. One of them is married to a Gentile, and all of them have endured such unique and even harsh circumstances. Tamar, her story is told in the book of Genesis. She marries a guy, she marries Judah's oldest son, and when Judah's oldest son dies, he marries her off to his second oldest son. Well, that guy dies too, and if I were the third guy, I would also be checking for my dinner for poison, but that guy luckily was too young, and so Tamar is sent back to her father's house. Now, this broke the law of the day. The law of the day was that you kind of kept your son's daughters, even after their son, your sons died, in your house to kind of provide for them financially and whatnot. But Judah didn't think that was necessary. He didn't, wasn't going to get enough of a write-off on his taxes or something. And so he sent her back to his, her home, where she languished in poverty, where she languished in neglect. And so Tamar does... I guess what only someone who is desperate could do, she dresses up as a prostitute and entices her ex-father-in-law to sleep with her. And so she has twins. Rahab, speaking of prostitutes, was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, who when the nation of Israel wanted to take the city, sent some spies into the city, they were being looked for, and so they hid in Rahab the prostitute's house when the Jerichoites or whatever they are knocked on the door and said, hey, do you got any Israelites in there? She said, none here, have a nice day, and they, on they went. And so Israel took the city of Jericho and Rahab was spared simply by hanging a scarlet cord out her window. The Old Testament's a pretty gritty place. Has no problem with praising Rahab for lying, which I'm pretty sure every Sunday school teacher tells us not to do. 
Ruth was a Gentile who lost nearly everything when her father-in-law, her brothers-in-law died. Her husband died, and yet she was plucked from poverty by this Boaz that we talked a little bit ago because he just loved her. Bathsheba was King David's mistress. See, even the most righteous man the Bible ever speaks about really outside of Jesus, this man after God's own heart. You see, he's supposed to be away at war, but he kind of got a little lazy, and so he's at home kind of hanging out while everybody else is on the front lines fighting the battle, and as he's looking out the window, he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop. It's what they did during those days. Again, it's not my problem. Go talk to the Old Testament. And so he says, I want that woman. And the verbs in the text are so interesting because it's he took Bathsheba. She wasn't given a choice. She wasn't asked. And then when he slept with her and got her pregnant, he put her husband on the very front lines of the battle so that he was the first to die. None of these are situations that we would write. None of them are even situations that we would think God is interested in using But the good news is that even in our setbacks, even in the midst of our frustration, our disappointment, even that stuff that in the midst of it, you wonder how in the world could God ever do something good with this, God uses these women in the line of Jesus. Sometimes the good news of the gospel is simply that our crap doesn't get in God's way that the hardship, that the mistakes, that the weirdness, that the way people harm us isn't something that limits God. There's this great verse in Job. Job had it hard, and he says, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the gospel, that nothing that God does can be thwarted. And then this text ends. In 1 verse 18, this is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. The waiting is over. Finally, we get to wake up on Christmas morning and open the presents. Finally, we get to tear into the goodness. Finally, the wait is over. Jesus, the text says, is the end of our waiting, which is way more than something I think that is cute and like Instagrammable. It has real, real, although feel free to Instagram it, it feels, it is real. When a few uh, years ago, my parents live in Arizona, and uh, we were going down, Steph and I, for Christmas. I think this was Christmas of 2012, because it was our first Christmas after we got married. And um, the day before our flight was supposed to leave, Chicago got slammed by snow. I'm not talking a little dusting. I'm talking, I think, like eight inches. And so my, we called my mom. She got us a hotel right by the airport so that we could wake up really early in the morning and go catch our flight. Because all the flights that day had been canceled. All those people had been bumped to the next day. Everybody's saying, you know, this actually one time in Chicago, we had a, what news anchors were calling the snowpocalypse. Um, this wasn't the snowpocalypse, but it was snowpocalypse-esque. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so we go to that hotel. We wake up at like, an hour that no one is intended to be awake at, and we get to the airport and we think, oh, no big deal, like the queue is pretty much open. We'll just, that's fine. Well, we get to the end of the queue and somebody says, oh, no, no, you gotta go that way and around that corner to get to the end of the line. Okay, so we go that way and around the corner and the line kind of goes back and around a corner. Oh gosh, all right, well, let's go down this way and 
around this corner and you know when you go to the airport that there's all of those ticket places that you go and you know here's United and Southwest. Well Southwest was way over here on the end and every other airport, this is Chicago Midway so it's not Akron Canton, it's not like there's three airports. Every possible airline carrier is all the way stretch and I, we turn this corner and there's a line all the way, the length of the airport and then doubles back and around somewhere else. And we have at this point an hour and 45 minutes, two hours to just catch our flight, which we did, we sprinted. Um, There's not good communication. I sprinted ahead of Steph and jogged left. She didn't see me jog left, so I'm trying to get on the plane and I see her sprint by where we're supposed to be getting. So the gate guy is looking at me like I'm crazy and then we're those people that like are coming onto the plane like, <laughs> like, you know, and sweaty and gross and coughing up. You know, and everybody's giving you the stink eye, and we sat like 17 rows apart, and we made it. But sometimes that's what waiting feels like. That's the problem with our waiting, is that it doesn't end. Is that we think we get to the end of the line, and then we turn the corner, and there's a whole other thing. That the line just keeps getting longer and longer, that we wait for God to do something, we wait for him to redeem us, we wait for him to move, and the line gets longer, or at the very least, our hearts are so broken, our souls are so fractured, that the way it works is that when we finally do get it, we're ready for the next thing. That even when we reach the end of our waiting, we're just not happy enough, and yet, The gospel tells us, Jesus says, that he is the end of our waiting because in him we find all of the desires that we had unmet, we find them satisfied. In him, the unwanted longings come to a resolution. Not instantly, not in a moment, but over time as we pursue him, as we walk with him, something over time shifts in our souls and we become content. And that's only possible because of this. Jesus, in his humanity, endured a lifetime, a lifetime, 33 and a half some years of unmet long, unmet desires and unwanted longings. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus understands us in every way. So Jesus doesn't look at us from heaven and be like, I don't know what the heck that weirdo is thinking. Jesus gets it, and he lived that life with those unmet desires and those unwanted longings. But here's the crucial difference. The difference that separates Jesus from the rest of humanity and makes him God is that he endured those longings and yet did so without sin. Because here's the deal. When you and I wait, when we're waiting for God to do something in our lives and we get impatient, it's way easier to use sin to numb out or escape. It's way easier just to press the eject button And yet Jesus lived his life without ever doing it. He lived a sinless life, died, lived a perfect life, died a sinless death, rose again in power, and he did it all for this so that he could usher us into the same intimacy he shared with the Father. This is why Jesus was able to endure his longings and his desires in this way. This is why Jesus was able to hopefully do without because he had perfect intimacy and connection with the Father which means he knew the Father's character. He was assured of it. It wasn't a question in his mind. And so when Jesus dies and rises again, he births a new humanity and invites each of us into that same intimacy with the Father, that same confidence in the Father's character. 
that even in my waiting, God isn't like my girlfriend, he's not playing games with me. You know what I'm saying? That even in my waiting, he's not just jigging along this little fishing line that I keep snapping at and snapping at, but I'm never going to get it. That Jesus really does have a heart to satisfy us, and he can do that because he is infinitely powerful to do so. Jesus is in, Jesus is the end of our waiting because he waited. But in knowing the Father was able to endure and be satisfied and invites us to know the same. So we wait. There isn't really like this cute next step after this sermon. There's not some sort of, well, here's three ways to resolve the tension. There's not four ways to persevere better. There's not a little poem. There's not a little acronym. There's this. It's us waiting together, praying Come, come, Emmanuel. Listen to these words. It's the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, speak, O Israel? Why do you say, my, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Why do you say that? Have you not known you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint or grow weary, whose understanding is unsearchable, gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run, not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We're going to sing this song in a minute. And the chorus just says, um, surely as the dawn appears, you'll come. Because as we wait, he comes to us. He walks alongside and he takes the weight with us and he speaks his understanding to us and his compassion to us. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the table of communion. At, at Regen, we celebrate communion every week because we're just religious nuts who like to do rituals. Just kidding. We celebrate communion every week because we believe that in the bread and the cup, Jesus makes himself presence to us, that it's a meal. Jesus said, my body is true food and my flesh is true drink. And so at this table, Jesus makes his presence known to us, not just as a factoid in our brains or a sentiment in our hearts, but in a way that is real, that we can't fully understand, and that is a gift to us. And so we always respond to his generosity in the gospel by eating bread and taking the cup. And so the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song to close and before that happens, um, Steph and um, actually Joan, if you wouldn't mind helping us serve communion, um, that'd be great. I'll have the bread. You can just come. You can grab a piece, and then you go to your side. You dip it in the cup. Um, if you plan on giving tonight um, at Regen, we use 
pretty much every dollar, and by pretty much every dollar, I mean 100% of every dollar, uh, to bless other people. This is where we are in the life of our church. And so um, as we give away coffee, as we point people to Jesus, as we interrupt their lives with the love and grace of Jesus, that's what your money does. And so if you're giving, there's a basket on that back wall that you can just hit on your way out this evening. Let's pray. God, the good news of the gospel is that you don't wait too long, but that you come to us. And so we ask that you would come to us even in this meal, a simple meal of bread and cup, that you would pour out your spirit on it so that it might become for us the body and blood of Christ. God, we need you (laughs) is what we need. We need you to be with us in our waiting. And so would you remind us of your ability to do that through this meal? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is open. Taste and see that the Lord is good.
Uh, my prayer for you this week is that, my prayer for you this week is that your chain would be broken, uh, that your eyes would be opened, that whatever it is would be healed, uh, and that that would happen as you experience the Lord's presence in your waiting. And I, I, don't, I can't promise you, I don't know what that feels like all the time, but I know it's true. So go now with him and uh, eat a half a dozen pumpkin truffles. You're loved. We'll see you next week.